Well, good morning. You can take your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We'll begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to use one. You'll find in the pew in front of you or possibly on the seat beneath you. And you'll find 2 Samuel chapter 11 on page 262, page 262 of that copy of the scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 11. For those of you who've been with us, you're aware that we're in a series we're calling Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And one of my prayers and goals for this series is that we would have an understanding of what it means for God to meet with us. There's a story about the life of Jacob. He's one of the Old Testament patriarchs. Uh, He actually had this encounter with God And after it it happened, after he had this dream, he said, Behold, the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. And just before the the service at 8.30 this morning, some other men and I, as we gather every Sunday morning at 8.30, we're praying that the Lord's presence would be known among us. God is right here. He is here with us. He meets with us. He's promised to be with us. But so often we fail to recognize his presence among us. And we should be praying that the Lord would make himself real to us, that we would actually know him. Another thing that is an emphasis of this series, and I've reminded you of actually even before I begin this series, is that one of the goals of preaching and really the capstone and, and impulse and motivation of what I want my ministry to you to be is found in Colossians chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, but this is where Paul is saying that we preach Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. The goal of preaching is to present Christ, is to show how that Christ meets your greatest need. That's why every part, every story that we look at in these encounters with God always points us to Christ, always exalts his work for us on the cross because there is nothing that is going to change our hearts and our affections than us seeing that what Jesus has done is for us personally, and that transforms every part of our lives. And so that's what the the emphasis of this series has been, to, to transform us through an encounter with God that happens only through Jesus Christ. As we turn to 2 Samuel 11, we are turning to another part in the life of David. We looked last time at David's encounter with God in which God promised David that he would build for him a house, a dynasty that would ultimately become the dynasty of Jesus Christ who would reign forever and ever. But now there is a darker chapter in the life of David that we have. It's a very famous story about David's sin with Bathsheba. So I want us to pray together and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts and minds as we consider what he has for us in this passage. Let's bow together and pray. Our Father, we have already sung these songs to you and about you, seeking to exalt you, seeking to draw our hearts to you. And now we come to this part of the service in which we want to continue our worship and our adoration of you by responding to you in the way that you deserve, and that is in faith and love, and joy, and obedience. Father, you have spoken. You're not silent. May we listen. May our hearts be attentive to your word. And I pray that you would do a change in our hearts that we could not do on our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Several years ago, I came across this magazine article that just grabbed my attention. And the title of the article was this, The Forgetting Pill Erases Painful Memories Forever. And the idea was that there are a lot of things in people's lives that they wish they could forget about, just erase that memory. And they were doing this research into actually being able to erase painful memories so that things that people were struggling with about their past, they could actually completely forget. I was thinking about that with reference to our lives. Surely there are a lot of things in our lives that we can just forget about. Chapters of our lives that we wish we could erase or rewrite or just rip out completely. Think about this for yourself. If there was a chapter in your life that you wish that you can just go back and erase or that you could go back and change, what chapter would it be? What part of your life in the past or possibly something that is lingering in its effects into the present would you go back and say, I wish I could change what I did. I wish I could rewind time and go back to that event and that choice and be in a different place or have a different attitude or change my actions somehow. I think that if we were to ask David that question, surely this chapter would come up. That he would go back and say, I would change 2 Samuel 11. Because here is this sin, the effects of which begin to unravel David's kingdom. And that would result in untold misery and bloodshed and heartache for every one of David's family members and his descendants. It is this story of David and Bathsheba. Perhaps David would wish that he had been in battle instead of snoozing on his couch that late afternoon. Perhaps David wished that instead of trying to cover up his sin by murder, that he would just confessed and made the whole thing right at the moment instead of adding murder to adultery and lying. It's this very famous story in the life of David that we're familiar with, and it has this kind of modern, relevant, up-to-date feel about it. It was 3,000 years ago, and since then, mountains have crumbled And civilizations have changed, continents have shifted, but how little has changed in human nature. Men and women still lust and lie and kill. People with power, from presidents of organizations to pastors of churches, use that power to ruin their own people and to hide their own sin. This still happens. Yes, it's an ancient story, but it's also a very modern and relevant story. People still run frantically to cover up their sins. Scandals still get dragged out into the public eye, and people like rubberneckers on the interstate are slowing down to to see the damage with rude staring. That's what we do. This is human nature. But the man at the center of this scandal is not a pagan God denier, but he's the founding father of the most important dynasty ever to be established. This is King David, the model king, the man after God's own heart. I mean, you'd think that we have this document that came down to us that is the part of the Word of God, the, the, book of, the books of First and Second Samuel, and you'd think that the Jewish scribes, if they were concerned to protect the integrity of their heritage, that they could have scrubbed this from history. They could have just chosen to leave this part out and not say anything about it. But they didn't. They kept it in. 
And you'd think that perhaps even if they kept it in, not another word we mentioned about it in the New Testament, but in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6, this incident of David's sin with Bathsheba gets another mention in the very genealogy of Jesus Christ that says this, David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. This is not a sin that has been forgotten. This is not an incident that can be scrubbed from memory. This stands as the reality of what happens when someone falls into sin and the catastrophic consequences that result. And so the question is, what do we learn from this? And as we walk through this incident in David's life, which will come to a turning point in his encounter with God. Remember, we're talking about encounters with God. How did David encounter God after this sin, after this time of self-deception? He'll reach a turning point in his encounter with God. What does this teach us? A little spoiler alert here. There are going to be two themes that will emerge from this story. And then I want you to pick up on as we go through it. And the first theme is one of judgment on sin. And the second one is a theme of mercy and forgiveness. We're going to see these two themes, and then we're going to see near the end of how they're connected because judgment and mercy and, and, and forgiveness and, and guilt, they seem like oil and water, like they don't mix. How does judgment and mercy, how do they come together in this story? We're going to see that as we unfold it, and we'll unfold it in three parts. The first part is David's sin committed. The second part is David's sin covered. And the third part is David's sin exposed. This is the progress of the story. David's sin committed. David's sin covered. And David's sin exposed. And what this tells us about judgment and mercy God's justice and wrath against sin, and God's grace. So here we go. First of all, David's sin committed. David's sin committed. David had the opportunity to sin. There's evidence that David was not where he was supposed to be. The Bible tells us in the first few verses of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, in the springtime was a time when kings were supposed to go out to war, and David was at war. But David, who was a king, was instead at home in Jerusalem, and he sent Joab, his commander, out to the war. And it was at this time when David's armor was off that his spiritual guard was down as well. He's snoozing in the late afternoon, a time when most people should be awake and working, and he gets up from his couch in the late afternoon, and there is his opportunity to sin. You see, there is always a lead-up to sin. On the outside, the, the, the image that you want to portray and that other people portray is that everything's fine, but cracks begin in the inside. Someone doesn't just fall off a cliff. There are many steps that lead up to that cliff. And so with David, was, was, he, was, he had the opportunity to sin because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. You know, this often happens to us too. We are most vulnerable when we're idle. Yes, we need times of leisure. We need a change of pace. But even leisure has its limits. A change of schedule, a summer break, long time away from parents, siblings, spouse, that can be the opportunity. And so it was with David. 
There's a reason why people say that idle hands are the devil's tools. And David saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The problem was not that David saw. Perhaps David shouldn't have been there in the first place, but the problem was not that David merely saw. It's what he did afterwards. It was the decisions that he made after he saw. You know, in this world, there are thousands of temptations that barrage us. It's like on the highway of life, there are hundreds of exit ramps that could lead to disaster. There are thousands of billboards advertising, get off at the next exit. It's, it's not the opportunities to sin that, that makes sin. It is our choice about what to do with that opportunity. And David saw, but it was what David did after he saw. There is this, uh, a saying that's attributed to the reformer Martin Luther. He said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can at least keep them from building a nest in your hair. You may not be able to keep the temptations from being stopped all around you, but you can at least swat them away. You could at least keep them from dwelling in you. And what we see David did is he not only let the bird of temptation fly over his head, he let it land on his head, and he built a nest for it. This is what David did with the opportunity. This is what David did with the look. The look turned to lust, and the lust turned to action, and David sent and inquired about her. You see that the answer that he got back in verse 3, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Right away, this should have just wakened David out of his his, uh, lustful fantasy when he realized that this woman after whom he was lusting was someone's daughter and someone's wife. But sin is inherently self-centered. David's not thinking about the father of this woman. David's not thinking about the husband of this woman. David's not even thinking about the woman herself. All David's thinking about is himself. This is the very nature of sin. It's putting my desires and my agenda and my hurts and my rights and my privileges up on a pedestal above everything else so that everything else becomes subservient to what I want to do. This is the nature of sin. It is self-centered. That's why it takes something radical to change self-centeredness to God-centeredness. But David's not there yet. We'll learn later on that the very heart of David's sin, God tells him, is that you despised me, God said. You made little of me and made much of yourself. David's putting himself up on the pedestal. I'm king, he thinks. I could do what I want. My friends, beware of selfishness. Beware of building your priorities around my needs, my rights, my privileges, my hurts. And the glance mutates into this lingering look and the look into lust, and the lust into action. And what a contrast with David's ultimate descendant who would teach this. You have, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus says, that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as James writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David, model king, man after God's own heart, writer of the Psalms, 
falls into sin, what does this teach us? Any one of us is vulnerable. Any one of us is vulnerable. You think that we're in a more secure position than David was? We're so naive to think that, that oh, David did that, but I, I never would. I never would fall in any such way. The Bible says, whoever thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. David's sin committed. But we know that the committing of David's sin is just the beginning of the story. Because we read in verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. See, Bathsheba's announcement to David led to three attempts to cover his sin. The first two failed. The third attempt was successful, or so David thought. David's covering of a sin, there are three attempts, two fails, one successful, at least David thought. You see, David's strategy was to make it seem as if Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was the father of this, of this child who had just been conceived. And this would mean taking Uriah off the battlefield and bringing him back home. And so under the pretense of asking Uriah about the battle, David brings him back. He asks Joab in verse 7 how the battle was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going, how Joab was doing. And then Joab, David tells Uriah, go down to your house and watch your, wash your feet. In other words, go home, relax. And this Uriah refused to do on the grounds how could he when his fellow countrymen are living in tents and fighting against the enemy? How could I do this? I'm a man on a mission. I'm in the middle of war. I can't rest. I can't stop. I owe it to my commander, and I owe it to my country, and I owe it to my fellow soldiers to stick with the stuff. I'm not going home. I'm on a mission. I'm not going to relax. I'm not even going to go home and see my wife. That was the first attempt. It failed. Second attempt. David's thinking, if I can't get him to do this in a clear mind, I'm going to have to mess with his mind. So David makes him drunk. Even intoxicated, Uriah still would not go home. Again, there's this contrast between Uriah and David. Uriah was unwilling to do, even with a, a mind that had been clouded by alcohol, what he had every right to do, and yet David, in a clear mind, was willing to do what he had no right to do. This massive contrast between Uriah's character and David's character in this incident. And still, even drunk, he won't go home. And so David resorts to his third attempt. We read about this in verse 14 of chapter 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. The unfairness and cruelty of this is almost unbearable. To think about this king who should have been protecting his people, he, a king who should have been sacrificing his personal interests to protect his people, instead is sacrificing his people to cover up his personal interests. And Uriah becomes the victim of David's lust. The husband of this woman becomes the one who is sacrificed to cover it up. The unfairness is unbearable. And it wasn't just Uriah who died. There were others who died with him. 
And, and David seems so casual about this in, in response when he hears the report about how the battle went. Instead of becoming upset at this, this failed strategy, David says, oh, well, battles are bad. Sometimes people die. Don't worry about it. We'll get over it. Just move on. You know that when we try to cover our sin, one sin often leads to another. You do something wrong, and then you have to lie to cover that up. And then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. And then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. And it gets more and more complicated. See, sin always complicates things. It always messes things up. It always distorts, always perverts, always destroys. That is the very nature of sin. We have within our hearts the self-destructive impulse. There's this silly story by Dr. Seuss that I've read to my kids. The cat in the hat comes back. And in that story, the cat in the hat leaves this pink ring around the bathtub, and they're trying to get rid of this pink ring. And if you've read the book, you know what happens. Every effort to get rid of this pink blob ends up spreading it further and further. It goes from the bathtub, I don't know the order, to the carpet, to dad's shoes, to the bed, to the wall. Pretty soon everything's covered in pink. This is, the, this is just like how our sin is. We, we use one thing to cover up another thing and it spreads further and further until it's over everything. And, and pretty soon we don't even know what the truth is ourselves. We've so deceived ourselves, so lied to ourselves and others. But there's another dimension to this cover-up, and that is this, that David is using his power for his own selfish purposes. He's been given the gift of kingly authority, and yet he wields this for his own pleasure and for his own protection. And so the outcome is the death of Uriah, the guilt of David, and now in verse 26 of chapter 11, we, they realize Uriah is dead, and David sent and brought her, that is Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife. He added her to his harem and bore him a son. Now, up to this point, we hear nothing about the Lord's assessment of all this, but now at the end of chapter 11, we read this sentence, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, up to this point, it's almost like David's been in charge. If you read this passage, did you notice how many times it said David sent? David's doing all the sending. David's doing all the manipulating. He's got this thing under control. He was the one that sent messengers to ask about Bathsheba. And then he sent messengers to go get Bathsheba. And then he goes sends this message to Joab. And he goes sends and brings Uriah. And then he sends Uriah back into battle where Uriah is killed. I mean, he's doing all the sending. He's doing all the action. And now in chapter 12, things change. Up to this point, David's been doing all the sending. And now God is doing some sending. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
You see, when we're in sin, we, we tend to have this delusion that I'm in charge of everything. I could control this. I could manage it. It's only going to go this far and no further. And then it goes a little further, and I can say, well, it's gonna, I'm going to draw the line right here, but I'm still in control, and I'm going to cover it up with this, and i got everything under control. And then God's looking down at all this, and God's actually the one in charge. We think we can manipulate our consequences. We think we could handle it. We think we got it under control. And that is the deceitfulness of sin. God will be the one doing the sending. And the Lord sent to Nathan. Here the tide changes. The mask of deceit will be torn off. The skeletons will come out of the closet. Here we have David's sin exposed. We looked at David's sin committed. David's sin covered, or so he thought. And now David's sin exposed. There are four parts of this exposing of David's sin. First of all, David sees the truth about his sin. David sees the truth about his sin. What did it, get to, what did it take to get David to see the truth about his sin? It took a story. A story that David thought was about somebody else. What does this tell us about sin? It tells us that sin is self-deception. It tells us that sin it makes it hard for us to see the reality about ourselves. And it tells us that even when we're in sin, we can have this very finely tuned sense of justice. You look at David's sense of justice. He hears a story about a rich man with many flocks and herds who gets a, a visitor coming to his house, and instead of taking from his own flocks a lamb to eat, he goes to his neighbor, who only has one lamb, not just any lamb, but it was like a pet. It was almost like a daughter to him. He snatches that lamb from him. He goes and kills it and eats it. And David's sense of justice is like, it's on point. You think David is such a moral monster with no conscience because of a sin that he can't even tell that this man was wrong? No, David saw it. He knew it. But there was something strange about David's sense of justice, and it was this. It was totally exaggerated. Do you remember what he said in response to this story? What did he say the man deserves, that the man deserves to have happen to him? What did he say? This man deserves to what? To die? No, no, hang on just a second, David. Hey, this is really bad of this man to steal this lamb. But the death penalty? Seriously? It's like David has this very finely tuned sense of justice, but somehow it's warped. It sees other people's wrongs as being so massive when he's unable to see his very own. This is true of people who are harboring a sin in their life and, and who are unable to see it for, for, it, for itself, to able to see that they, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Going back to David's ultimate descendant who puts his finger on the heart of our own self-deception, he says this, how can you, if you have a log in your eye, how can you say to your brother, you have a splinter or a speck in your eye? Here's what you need to do, Jesus said. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. The nature of sin is to get us to think that we're not part of it. This is sin as self-deception. This is what was going on. It's not that David's sense of justice was dulled or obliterated, just like if you and I are living in sin, we can still see injustice. The problem is... We don't see it in ourselves. 
quick to notice the wrong of others. May I ask you to consider something? Is it possible that the reason, let, let, let's say, suppose you are very alert to the faults of others. Maybe it's somebody in your family or somebody at work, and you, and you just, you see they're wrong, and you can, you can analyze exactly what they're doing wrong. May I suggest that possibly your finely tuned sense of morality is not necessarily because you are so perfect yourself, but because there may be a guilt in your life that you've turned a blind eye to. Are we willing to consider that? Our ability to deceive ourselves is one of the most puzzling and paradoxical features of human nature, that we could actually begin to believe a lie. We could believe something we know to be untrue and think it's true. This window through which David looked at a man that he thought was not himself, realized was himself. This is the deceitfulness of sin that's being talked about in Hebrews chapter 3. The deceitfulness of sin. Much of the power of sin comes in getting you to think that it's not. Here's what we tend to think. It's, yes, it's wrong, but maybe it's not, maybe it's wrong for everybody else, but not me. Okay, maybe it's wrong, but given my circumstances, I was completely justified in doing that. Okay, maybe it's wrong from one perspective, but if you see what everybody else is doing, these are the tactics by which we try to deceive ourselves about sin. So the truth about David's sin, it took a parable in which he saw himself in the mirror, but also it pointed out the heart of sin. This is in, we see this in verse 9 of chapter 12. What is at the very heart of all this? All this self-deception behind the adultery, behind the murder, behind the lying, behind all this manipulating and contriving is actually something not to do exclusively with Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab or Nathan or anybody else, but it has something to do with God. The Lord says, why have you despised? Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? In verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you, this is the Lord speaking to David, you, David, have despised me, the Lord. You see, at the very heart of sin, it was, just, it was not just a lust problem. It was not just a lying problem. Ultimately, it was a worship problem. You see, David had the wrong person on the throne of his life. Essentially, David had knocked the Lord off the throne of his life, and he had put his own interest in its place, in his place. This was, the Lord put his finger right in the heart of the problem. Yes, in David's, in that circumstance, it was lust that turned to adultery, that turned to murder, that turned to lying. Yes, but it could have been anything else. The, The principal issue was that David had dethroned God. That David had said, I want to be God of my life. It was not ultimately an issue of the the many sins that we see all around, but it was a worship issue. Here's what happens to us. When God is small to us, sin is very easy to commit. 
When we have a low, small view of God and of his holiness and of his majesty and of his goodness and his mercy, when anything about God in our minds is small, sin is so much easier to commit. And at the same time, or in, in the opposite way, when our view of God is massive, when we remember that God is creator and sustainer, and that he is the maker of all and the judge of all, and that he is the one to whom we will give account, and he is the one who loves us more than anyone could, this is the God we serve, then sin becomes a lot more distant and begins to flee away. Why? Because we put God on the throne of our hearts. God told David, you have despised me, shoved me to the side, treated me small. We see in David the exposing of his sin. He sees the truth of his sin. He sees the heart of his sin, and that is despising God. And in this despising God, we see a theme that we've encountered again and again in this series, and that is this. Sin is founded upon the lie that there's, there's some good to be found outside God. If God is the only source of good, then we are to seek our good only in Him. And whenever we seek it in something else, that's when we sin. That's what Adam and Eve did when the serpent tempted them and said, Oh, take of this fruit. You can be like gods, knowing good and evil. They think it's something great to do. Why? Because they believe that God's gifts were not enough. There's some good to be found outside of God. Every time. That's the lie underlying every single sin. But third, in the exposing of David's sin, he also realized the consequences of sin. The son conceived by David and Bathsheba dies. An untold heartbreak continues to plague David's family. And judgment would be unleashed on David. We read that in our scripture reading earlier. God says in verse 12, of chapter 12, you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. The consequences of sin. But then after this, in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Completely confesses his sin in this, this brief but authentic and sincere statement. And then we see the forgiveness of sin. If we'll just be honest with ourselves, as this story progresses, this is almost puzzling. This massive sin, one, a one-sentence confession and a one-sentence forgiveness? Now, I, I was expecting something a little more like thunder and lightning. Yeah, there was thunder and lightning in the judgment. Okay, there is this, there's this perplexing mix of judgment. The son is going to die. Four sons of David will, would, would, would also die. David's kingdom begins to unravel. A son rebels against him. Okay, that's judgment. Those are consequences. And yet, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, oh, doesn't say, let me get back with you in five years and we'll see how this goes. He didn't even say, 
Let me go talk to the Lord about this. He's standing right there in the same conversation, and he says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that? This is an astonishing twist to the story. God sweeps away David's sin. And this, this right here, my friends, brings us back to the question that we asked at the beginning. Justice and mercy. You see such judgment against sin, and you see such astonishing mercy. How are they connected? Like oil and water, they seem not to mix. As we look at this story from beginning to end, from top to bottom, we see that in this story there is enough judgment against sin to make us fear God and the awful consequences of sin, and yet there is enough grace in this story to make us want it and want forgiveness. The story leaves a question for us. How do we get this forgiveness? And here is where we must see that the story of David's encounter with God after his sin with Bathsheba, after months of self-deception, after the word of Nathan the prophet reveals to him that he is the man who is guilty. What this story points to, what this encounter of God is, with God is really pointing to, is to David's ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. How is that pointing to Jesus Christ? It is in this. Only Jesus in his dying on the cross for sin, can show us how justice and mercy are connected. And here's how. Jesus took the punishment for sin upon himself. You want to see the consequences of sin? Here's how bad sin is, and here's the consequences that sin deserves. It takes a pure, innocent divine being, the Son of God, suffering a horrible, torturous death to make it right. That's the consequence of sin. That's judgment. But also, you see mercy because in taking sin upon himself, Jesus is taking our sin upon himself. That is love, and that is grace, and that is forgiveness. That's how the story of David and Bathsheba, this perplexing and bewildering mixture of judgment and grace, of sin and forgiveness, anticipates the cross of Jesus Christ because only through the cross can we see God's perfect justice and God's boundless grace. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. How can you ever see your sin for as it, as it truly is without diminishing it? Only by seeing the cross. How can you see God's love for what it is without diminishing it, without despising it, without making it small, only by looking at the cross? You see, there is enough justice and judgment and consequence in this, in this story to make us look at sin and say, I never want to get into it. I never want to be part of it. In fact, we look at this story, we have to realize this is no theoretical question because we're all like David. Which one of us doesn't know the burden of guilt? Which one of us doesn't know how complicated life is when we start lying to ourselves and other people to try to cover it? 
Which one of us hasn't spent days, weeks, months, years even running from God? That's not a story just about David. Just as the story that David heard was not just a story about a rich man who stole a lamb from a poor man. We think we're looking in a window, we're looking in a mirror. A mirror that shows us not just guilt, but grace. Grace that comes only because of what Jesus did for us. And that's where we need to be could be that you're hearing this for the first time or realizing it for the first time. Just like David realized for the first time that that he was more guilty than he had ever been willing to admit. And if that's true of you, there's, there's only one thing for you to do, and that is to put your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose again and who is the only one who can save you from your biggest problem and that is sin that separates you from the beauty and life and goodness of God. That's what you need to do. And many of us need the constant reminder of the deadly consequences of sin. Why? Because we're constantly in danger of making it small, of trivializing it. How big is your God? How important is He to you? Is He everything to you? Is He your source of goodness and joy and satisfaction? You know, the degree to which you derive all your joy in God is the degree to which you'll be able to fight sin with joy and not guilt, with energy and not exhaustion. Seeing God as David realized, as he knew then, and as he would write, continue to write later, later, that in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore, to such a degree that he, that he writes these psalms having to do with the pleasure and joy and fulfillment of being in the presence of God forever and ever. That's the sort of joy that we can have. It's a sin-smothering, temptation-shoving kind of joy in God. And you can have that. This story of David and Bathsheba is a story that points to our need for God's grace and how we could find it in Jesus Christ.